For the past six months or so, on and off, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. Tonight, uh, we get to the end. Uh, we did the last bit around Easter, uh, but this is, this is our final session on 1 Corinthians tonight. We look at the end of chapter 14, uh, beginning to read at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it's reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Thanks be to God for his word. If you want to find out what makes a great leader and you go online, you will find that there is no shortage of websites, each giving up to ten qualities of the ideal leader. I'm not quite sure whether that's a good or a bad thing. In one way, you go on and you can be encouraged because in most of the sites you can find one or maybe two things. You think, ah, I do all right with that. Uh, and the other half a dozen or more, well, maybe that's not me. Uh, but you can say, I've got those qualities and the others perhaps I should work on. But the more sites you read, the realise the bigger the profile of the ideal leader becomes and the more impossible it becomes ever to achieve. Jesus, with characteristic pithiness, simply said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. That's how he summed it up. And one or two, though not many of the sites, say that humility should be one of the characteristics of a good leader. What Jesus said was easy to memorise, not so easy to put into practice. That's normal with Jesus. But you can always say that he led by example. Paul was writing to Corinth, and Corinth was a city more noted for its arrogance than its humility. It was proud of its newly established status as a Roman colony. 
And in a world where opportunities for upward mobility were few and far between, Corinth was a good place to go and make your fortune. Though, of course, most people in the city didn't. Most people continued to be trapped in the social stratum to which they were born. But some wormed their way up the slippery slope of social advancement. And there were many in the city who hoped to aspire to be able to, to get on in life and be somebody and achieve something. Paul reminds the Corinthians that not many of them were wise. Not many of them were influential. Not many of them were of noble birth. Not many of them had much to boast about, really. But living as they did in a city characterised by a culture of shameless self-promotion, there were those within the church who had quite an unhealthy preoccupation with their own social standing. Where were they on the pecking order? Some of them aspired to spiritual greatness within the church. In Paul's eyes, they were never going to get there because they were too full of themselves to be full of the Holy Spirit. Their egos kept on getting in the way. And when the church gathered to worship, some of those who took a leading role had a tendency to hog the limelight. At least, that's what Paul had been told. Once they started, there was no stopping them. Some were putting a lot of emphasis on their ability to speak in tongues, their capacity to speak in an unknown language. It is like being so full of the Holy Spirit that you express what's in your heart in words that you yourself do not understand. It's an overtly supernatural gift. And there's always been a tendency, perhaps, for some people to see it as some kind of badge of spiritual honour. If you can speak in tongues, then you're someone special. And there was a degree of disgruntlement within the church because it quite possibly there was a perception that those who prayed in tongues, some of them at least, did so to enhance their own spiritual standing. This is something that I do and, and, and you can't, and therefore I'm, I'm a little bit better than you. And reading between the lines, I think that there were some in the church then, as there are in the church today, who were deeply suspicious of this. They said, we don't know what they're saying. They could be talking gibberish. They could be saying, Jesus be cursed for all we know. We wouldn't have a clue. And there were some who just wanted to, to outrule it altogether. Faced with these squabbles over worship, Paul took a mediating stance. He assures the Corinthians that actually he prays in tongues more than any of them do. So actually it's a good thing there's no way that you should forbid someone speaking in tongues. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And if the person speaking in tongues has confessed Jesus as Lord, then you don't need to be anxious about whether they're operating under the influence of some other pernicious spirit. Yet he also makes the point that speaking in tongues does next to nothing to build up or strengthen or encourage or instruct the church. And that should be the aim and purpose of all spiritual gifts. So however impressive it might appear to be, however much the, the status of the person, person speaking in tongues might appear to be enhanced by the exercise of this gift, the fact is it's of limited value in encouraging the church and therefore, actually, it's not a particularly special gift. It should be used sparingly, with no more 
than two or three people using the gift in turn. And then only doing so if there's someone present who can interpret the meaning of what's been said for everybody else's benefit. If no one with the gift of interpretation is there, just pipe down and keep quiet. Bottom line is, if your praying in tongues isn't edifying anybody else, you're just building yourself up. And that's dangerously close to showing off. So it would be better to display a degree of spiritual maturity by showing that you've got this gift under control and using it in the appropriate time and the appropriate place and the appropriate way. In Paul's eyes, prophecy was a much more useful gift because if God was speaking through a prophet in the church, then everybody could understand what was being said. Everybody benefited. Everyone had the chance to learn something useful and be encouraged and be built up in their faith. And Paul is keen to point out the advantages of prophecy over tongues, especially when visitors who did not believe in Jesus were present. I'd rather speak five words, as a prophet, he said, than 10,000 words in a tongue. And if someone who really doesn't have a clue what's going on comes into church and they hear everyone speaking tongues, they won't make head or tail of it. They'll think you're all mad, he says. But if someone says something and God speaks through that person, directly and powerfully into the life of the visitor, then they're likely to respond with faith and conviction, maybe even getting dramatically converted on the spot, falling to their knees and declaring, God is really among you. And we thought this morning about how if worship is spirit-led and Christ-centred, there, there can and should be an unmistakable sense of the presence of the Lord among his people. Spirit-filled worship creates faith. People are strengthened and built up and encouraged and comforted in in their faith, and the church benefits from it. But again, Paul is concerned to make the point that all worship needs to happen in an orderly and appropriate fashion. It wasn't like Brighton Road at Corinth, where there's a kind of respectful silence after someone has contributed to worship. It was a melee. Everybody was in there. Everybody was taking part. Everyone was kind of speaking at the same time. So Paul says, look, take it in turns. Two, no more than two or three prophets should speak one after the other. Take the time to weigh and consider what they're saying. Is this a word from the Lord's? Is is it God speaking to us? Is there too much of the prophet's own perspective muddled up in this? Let's weigh and consider it carefully. And if, if someone else gets a revelation from the Lord while one prophet is in full flow, the first speaker has to make way and sit down, giving space and time for the other person to come forward. So I think God has, God has just shown me this. I feel that God wants to say this to us at this point in time. If that happens tonight, wave your hand and I will gladly make space for you. What's this about? Again, it's about ensuring that stuff is done in an orderly fashion. But it's also about making sure that whoever is speaking is held accountable. They don't hold the floor and everybody else has to listen to them. Actually, if someone else has something to say, they have to, to give way. Whatever is said from the front is subject to the scrutiny of the other members of the congregation. Discernment is required. It's not a case that I'm at the front, therefore I'm in charge. Actually, the person who's at the front has to be subject to the rest of the congregation, and what they say has to be considered and pondered by the rest of the congregation. The individual is subject to the group. 
So the words are not simply taken as gospel truth, but are carefully weighed and considered. John and Claire were saying the other day there's a tradition of heckling in the Methodist church, inasmuch as the, the congregation are there to hold the speaker to account. And if someone at the front says something that actually sounds a little bit dodgy, the congregation have the right to step up and intervene and say, well, what about this? What about scripture saying this? No one has the right to hog the floor. Whoever is speaking has to be prepared to give way to somebody else. Again, it's about showing that the gift is under control, that God is a God of peace and order, not of confusion. It's about behaving with due humility towards other people, not lording it over people, not bigging yourself up, but actually making sure that what you say is serving the church. So Paul tells those who speak in tongues, they have to keep quiet if there's no one there to interpret. And he tells those who prophesy, they have to keep quiet if a a revelation comes to someone else, because God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And then he says to the women, you've got to keep quiet. Full stop. Not allowed to speak, but have to abide by the law and stay in their proper place because it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. If they've got any questions or queries, ask your husbands at home, in private. Don't give the minister grief over this. But what do we make of this? People suggest that some of the women in the congregation have become unruly, interrupting the proceedings, disrupting what was going on, shouting the speaker down, saying, I don't agree with that, he's not got it right. And it was all becoming just a little bit out of hand. Maybe some of them were getting a bit too big for their boots and starting to boss the men around, and, and Paul feels they need to be kept just in their place a little bit. The trouble is to us, it all feels a little bit oppressive and even misogynist. And it does read like a blanket ban on women speaking in church rather than a knee-jerk reaction to a specific situation where some women were going over the top. Paul says, this principle applies in all the churches. You shouldn't start thinking that you're a special case. as if the word of God has just come to you. It's like it's a universal principle that should be applied. And then you start to think, well, actually, earlier in the letter, Paul has talked about women needing to have their heads covered so that there's an appropriate degree of modesty in place when they pray or prophesy, because in that culture, uncovered hair could sometimes be seen as a symbol of feminine sexuality. And Paul didn't want the men to be distracted by this, and certainly not any angels who might happen to be present. But how can he say, you know, if you're praying or prophesying, you should have your head covered in chapter 11, chapter 14, say, actually, shut up, keep quiet, got any questions, ask them at home. Can't he make up his mind? Is he contradicting himself? Is he really a covert misogynist who tried to restrict women's freedom to speak in earlier in the letter, but actually shows his true hand here when he says women aren't allowed to say anything at all? And where does such an instruction leave us? Our service would have been impoverished tonight if Elizabeth hadn't been able to lead us in prayers, and, and many ladies present hadn't led us in our time of open worship. There are churches in Horsham you can go to where women have to keep quiet. And uh, they're not a million miles away from this particular church. Um, But here, we allow women to speak and we recognise they have the gift of speaking and of teaching. 
Do we do that simply because we ignore this awkward bit of 1 Corinthians and want to say, well, that that doesn't apply to us? That was a contextual thing. We disagree with it, so we're not going to go along with it. How do we deal with this bit where Paul says, you know, women, it's disgraceful if you speak, you've got to keep quiet. What's going on? Well, whatever you do with this, it's controversial. It's controversial if you say, this this is gospel truth, women, from now on, sorry, hats on, mouth shut, that's the way it's going to be. The other direction you can go in is to say that there is is a 6th century manuscript called Codex Claramontanus, which places these controversial verses about women having to keep quiet in church at the end of the chapter. They're kind of taken out of their section in the middle of the chapter and they're placed right at the end. And if you, if, you, if you put them in that place, verses 32 to 37 read like this. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as is the case in all the congregations of the saints. Or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it's reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or is spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. And that bit makes it all on the same theme about how prophets ought to conduct themselves within church. It it is one set piece on a single subject, although the syntax is slightly awkward. Why then does this bit about women get shunted down to the end of the chapter? There's a Pentecostal scholar called Gordon Fee, whose evangelical credentials are therefore not in any doubt whatsoever, and he says that the best explanation for these two verses being found in one place in most manuscripts and another place in one manuscript and its associated scripts, is that actually these verses may not have been in Paul's letter to the Corinthians originally at all. They were written as a kind of marginal insertion. Someone else kind of added this as a note in the margin of the text and it got slotted in in one place in most manuscripts at the end of the chapter in one particular manuscript. He says, actually, the best way of explaining why it's there in these manuscripts and there in this manuscript is originally it was there. It was in the margin and it got put in different places by different people. Convinced? Not everybody is. For myself, I think it's just possible because I think something similar might have happened at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. But actually, if that's the case, You have a situation where Paul undoubtedly saw the Spirit of God as setting people free, giving them a liberty to transcend the roles that society ascribed to them. And I think there were women who actually said, we can disregard the roles that society ascribed to us. We can do anything we want. And there were people who thought, this is going over the top. We need to keep this in check. So maybe there was someone who wrote a note in the margin actually say, actually, in the churches, this is how it ought to be. Women should not kind of jump over the boundary, but they ought to pipe down and keep quiet. Some people think Paul himself wrote that note in the margin. Other people think that somebody else did. Who knows? Who knows? But there are legitimate grounds for saying, actually, Paul may not have written these words and therefore that gives people who feel that women should be allowed to speak in church enough wiggle room to say, actually, okay, that's the way we're going to take it then. 
We are going to give women the freedom and the liberty to use their gifts of speaking in church and acknowledge the gifts that God has given to them. Because there is no doubt that God calls and equips women with gifts of teaching and speaking and prophecy and prayer and and teaching and actually calls them into his service. And here in this church, at least, we we recognise that, we welcome those gifts and we acknowledge them and we say, well, use them to the glory of God in the context of this congregation. And we can get round those difficult verses by saying, actually, perhaps they weren't in the original text in the first place. Do they accord with the Spirit of God? Do they resonate with us as the kind of thing that God would say? Not everyone would say that they did. And there's a warning to us there how easy it is, actually, for sincere, committed Christians actually to clamp down on the Spirit sometimes, out of a desire really to keep control of things. And between everything, anything happening and nothing happening, there is a middle road of the Spirit giving us freedom which is under our control and is orderly and is not a source of confusion but is peaceful and is appropriate and is glorifying to God. In terms of people's roles within society, Paul clearly felt that the Spirit of God set people free, giving them a liberty to transcend their place within society. To those in Corinth who felt they were hung up over not being wise or of high social standing or of noble birth, he says, in Christ, you've got far more. And women discovered a liberty through the gospel that they'd not found anywhere else. And that's part of the reason why perhaps the church struggled to accommodate the liberation that they were bringing. It went a little bit too far, too fast for some people to cope with. But at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, take a look, good look friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential. Not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn... Blow a trumpet for God. That's what Paul wanted from those who were speaking in tongues and prophesying in church, to use their gifts to promote Jesus, not themselves. And that you always make yourself a little bit vulnerable if you, if you speak out or you say or you do something because you, you place yourself in the hands of others who assess what you're doing who kind of try and figure out, is this of God or not? And I guess for a woman, speaking in a situation where you know, it's not necessarily the dumb thing for women to do, you put yourself even more on the line. But church has to be a place where there is order, where there is acceptance, where there is a critical assessment of what is going on. And within the covenant bonds of trust that we have, people are released into using their gifts so long as we recognise that we are accountable to each other for the gifts that we use. Whatever we do, we don't do it to promote ourselves. We do it to glorify Jesus Christ. Male or female, whatever gift you have, 
if you are secure in your identity in Christ, you won't be so bothered about what other people think of you, but you will use your gift to glorify Christ and serve others around you. Christ loves you. He set you free. He's claimed you for his own. He's made you someone worthy of respect. And he's given you the gifts and abilities that you have to use in his service. And that's why whoever we are, in our worship and in our daily lives, we say, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we've thought about some difficult things tonight. What Scripture says, whether it's Scripture, what the Spirit of God is saying, how we deal with bits of Scripture that don't sit easily with us. Thank you for your hand on our lives as individuals and as a congregation. Thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. Thank you for the liberty we have in Christ. For those who feel really insecure about the gifts you've given them, encourage them. May they know our support and our love to be released into using their gifts so that everyone can be blessed and encouraged and built up in their faith. And those of us who are confident, pray that you'd keep us humble. Lord, all of us, we offer who we are and what we have to you in your service. Pray that you'd take us and use us so that we can serve each other in your name and bring glory to your name and that the church might be built up and encouraged and strengthened in its faith and that those who come here might find, wow, God is really present amongst these people. Lord, may that be true of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.